I would like to begin our study with a testimony from Napoleon Bonaparte. After he had gone into exile, he had taken a friend with him, a devoted friend by the name of Henry Bertrand. And he was discussing Christ with Henry Bertrand, an officer who had accompanied him into exile, but did not believe in the deity of Jesus. The former emperor of France gave this witness. He said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was not a mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between him and the founders of empires and the gods of their religions. That resemblance, he said, does not exist. There is between Christianity and the forms of pagan worship the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ, he said, astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. He commands us to believe and gives no reason besides his own inspiring claim, I am God. Between him and others in this world, there is no possible comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His sentiments, the truths which he announced, and his manner of life are unexplainable. Philosophers who try to solve the mysteries of the universe by their empty dissertations are fools. Christ, he said, speaks with authority. And the closer I come and the more carefully I examine him, everything is above me and has a grandeur which overpowers. I search in vain, he said in history, to find one similar to Jesus or anything which can approach the gospel he preached. Everything he said about him is extraordinary. I love that. Because that is basically the testimony of John in his gospel. And everything we read in the gospel of John about Jesus is extraordinary. That is because he himself is no ordinary man. He is God come to us in the flesh. Last time when we had our discussion together here, we talked about the deity of Jesus Christ as it is presented in the first five verses here in the gospel of John. And I want to pick up again with that section and go on with it. Let's read the verses, shall we? From verses 1 down to verse 5. John writes here, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now those are the verses that we're dealing with, and you could also add in verse 14, because they really go with the first two verses, and we'll be looking at that in a few minutes. But we've already looked at verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Greek is Lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We saw here that Jesus is in fact God, and He is in fact the Word, and we looked at that in great detail. But I want to go on now and talk about the fact that we have in front of us some other things. We have the deity of the Word, but we also have here the creation through the Word. Creation of the world, the universe, and everything that exists. We have here the incarnation of the Word down in verse 14. And we're going to drop down and pick up that verse because it goes really with the first two verses. And we have here also the life in the Word. So these are the things that are in our text. The deity, the creation, the incarnation, and the life in the Word. And I want to spend a lot of time, really, in our message tonight, looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I'm fascinated with the incarnation of God. But before we get to that, I want to go to verse 3 and talk about the creation that we see here through the Word. And there's a couple of things I want to suggest to you that are found in verse 3. Verse 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now that obviously speaks to us of His manifested power as Creator. Jesus Christ is the Creator. I often think that that's one of the reasons that the evolutionists work so hard to continue to build and support their argument that has such a bad foundation. Because if they admit to the fact that evolution is not true, then they have to deal with the truth that is found in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the one who created it all. Thus, to sidestep evolution, they come face to face immediately with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ immediately has you face your sin. 
And thus, they run from this whole idea of creationism, I think, often just simply to get away from Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was creator, if it said here that some great vibration that always existed, that demands nothing of you, that won't impugn you for your sins, was the creator, they might quickly abandon evolution. But because they must deal with Jesus who deals with their sin, they cling to it and continue to try to develop it. We are told here that Jesus Christ is the force and the power and the being behind creation. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. His manifested power is Creator. Ephesians 3.9 speaks of God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.16 and 17 says this, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. So this is saying that everything was created by Jesus. That includes the material universe as well as the things that we don't see, such as the angels. And then, of course, the, the angels that fell are demons, but they were originally holy angels, so He created the visible and the invisible. And we're told here that whether they are thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Now notice the last part of that one verse where it says, actually says here, all things were created through Him and for Him. So that if you think about the purpose of creation, you say, well, why was all of this created? Well, it was created for Him. If you've ever asked in your heart and in your mind the great question of life, why am I here? The answer to that is you are here for Him. And until you come to terms with that, until you begin to live your life in response to that, you will know nothing except emptiness. Because your purpose for existence is to please Him, to know Him, to dwell in fellowship with Him. So to try to live your life any other way other than to realize that you exist for Him, if you live your life like that, in fact your whole life, not answering to that truth, then you will miss your destiny as God designed it as a human being and you will go through your entire life in emptiness and frustration trying to find the driving purpose of your life because that is the purpose of your life. God created you. Whether you know Him through Jesus Christ personally or not, He is your Creator because He created man and He created all men to live for Him as the Creator. So we see, first of all here, His manifested power as Creator. But there's something else that I see here. Look at verse 3 again. It says, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Notice the first two words, all things. You know what that says? It speaks of His attention to detail as Creator. This phrase, all things, comes from a Greek word that literally refers to all things individually or separately. In other words, it is speaking about the infinite detail found in creation. So when we think of Jesus Christ manifesting His power as the Creator, we must go further and think of Him as a Creator who gives great attention to detail throughout all of His creation. And this is a fascinating thing to think about. As you begin to think about this, your whole understanding of God just begins to expand and expand and expand. You see this attention to detail, for example, in the vastness of space. I don't know if any of you have ever owned telescopes. Anybody here have a telescope? Just go ahead and raise your hand. All three of you. And out of the three of you, do any of you use your telescope? No, so nobody, okay? But I used to have a telescope, and I used to love to look at the moon when I was a kid. I'd sit on my driveway, look up at the moon, and I remember one night I found Saturn. I was just convinced it was Saturn, the rings around it. And I used to look out there at the stars and how they have different colors and how they twinkle and the different constellations that are up there. I've always been fascinated with space. In fact, I've told you that the night I came to the decision that I was going to give my life to Jesus Christ, I was sitting at the Colorado River the entire night looking at the stars and the full moon. 
the Bible tells us to look up because the heavens declare His glory and there is no language or nation or speech where the message doesn't go out of the glory of God as seen in the stars. I love the stars. I love to study space. Now, if you take a scientist with his telescope, a real powerful telescope, they can probe out into the far distances of space. But the problem is that the distances out there are so far that it takes a special unit of measure with which to express those concepts of how far you have to deal with in the vastness of space. So the astronomer's yardstick then to measure space becomes what they call a light year. That is the distance that light travels in one year. Now, light travels at 186,273 miles per second. What does that mean? Well, it might bring it down to your understanding better if you realize it's the equivalent of encircling the earth at the equator seven and a half times. It's the equivalent of going around the earth seven and a half times at the equator in one second. That's how fast that is. If you put together then a full light year in round numbers, what you would have in terms of distance, something traveling at a distance in that way, you would have about six trillion miles traveling at the speed of light in one year's time. So when astronomers have to deal with the vastness of space, they deal with it in terms of light years. Our sun by that yardstick is only eight light minutes away. So that's pretty close. But out there in space, there are suns and stars believed to be billions of light years away. You're beginning to see how big the creation is. We cannot count the stars or guess how many billions there are, but some of them are so huge, it's beyond the imagination. So they would have to have a lot of room to sit out there because they're so huge. We've been talking about the space. Let's talk about the size of this, some of these things sitting out there that Jesus Christ created. There is the star Antares, for example, which if you were to take 64 million suns, the size of our sun, you could take 64 million suns the size of our sun and, and hollow out the inside of an Antares and stick them all in there. 64 million of our suns. That's a pretty big star out there. In the constellation Hercules is a star that could contain 100 million stars the size of Antares. Are you with me? So now we're talking a big star out there. Now, when Jesus created the heavens and the universe, he just sent them all out there, just whoo, with a wave of his hand, boom, 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 all into their place. He put the stars in their place, and he spans the universe with his hand, the Bible says. We're talking a big God here, folks, a very big God. <laughs> we see his attention to detail with all the vastness of space and all that is in there. But we also, if we want to come down to a more human level, we see his attention to detail and creation in the brain. I like to think about the brain, too, because it's a universe all of its own. One of the most amazing things about the brain is the whole idea of memory. We have the astounding capacity to store millions of bits of information, to keep them in order, and to recall them when needed. According to Think Magazine, the brain can store enough data to fill several million books a capacity that makes modern computer storage seem absolutely insignificant. For example, listen to this. The famous conductor Arturo Toscanini demonstrated the capacity of the memory in the brain because he memorized, get this, the worship people will appreciate this, he memorized every note for every instrument in 250 symphonies and 100 operas. Every note for every instrument in 250 symphonies and 100 operas. That is a great memory. Some of you can't remember what I preached last Sunday. <laughs> but we do see in some people the amazing capacities of what God has created in the brain. Now, if you want to go down smaller, we've been out in the vastness of space. We've come into the brain of man. We could go smaller down into the world of molecules and atoms. See the attention to detail the Lord has given in His creation. The building block, you know, of the universe is the atom. 
And it is an entity so small that each one is less than 150 millionth of an inch in diameter. If you took the molecules in a single drop of water, the molecules in a single drop of water, and you converted those into grains of sand, the molecules in a single drop of water, you converted each molecule, just one little drop, into grains of sand, there would be enough sand to build a concrete highway half a mile wide and one foot thick all the way from New York to San Francisco. That's staggering. It's mind-boggling. You look at all of that and you see that there's this incredible attention to detail within the creation. And we read here in John 1.3, all things were made through him, all things individual and separate. Every little detail was made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made, not anything at all. Nothing is beyond the reach of what he made. Jesus made it all. That's the point. So as we look at this verse... We see that He manifested His power as Creator. Jesus Christ is the Creator. We see His attention to detail as Creator. But you know what that comes together in terms of application to speak to my heart? That if we have this kind of a great and awesome God who can have that kind of manifestation of power and gives that kind of attention to detail, and yet He has come to be my Savior, how much and how great is His ability to work in my life, to use that creative power in my life. You see, God has so worked His plan that He has chosen to make that power available to you and I through Jesus Christ so that we can come to Him and get down on our knees and ask Him to transform us and we can do it with the knowledge we've just looked at here that He has the kind of power that could create a star like Antares and even a bigger one to gobble it up that's even bigger than that. And that same power has come to dwell within us through the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. I'll tell you, I think about that often. When I come to prayer and I'm asking the Lord to change me, I call to remembrance this verse, that Jesus is the Creator and He has manifested that power in creation and He wants to manifest that same power in me. You see, what the Lord has done is He has come to dwell within you. And not only has He come to dwell within you, but He has actually placed within you a new life. You have a new creature within you. You are a new person in Christ. Now we know that that's buried down in there underneath all of this humanness. We know that. We know that. But what is encouraging as we're looking at this text is this. Having placed that new life down within us and having made us aware of how powerful He really is, we should be encouraged at His ability to transform us and draw that new life out to the surface. To be able to strip away the layers of humanness that have been built up over the years, the strongholds, the habits, and all these things, and to draw to the surface that new creature that is within us. To have a real manifestation in our life of who we really are now in Christ. I am very encouraged when I look at this. It's as if Jesus is saying, Give me your life and I will make you what you now have the ability to become through me. Give me your life and I will be able to make you what you are now able to become because of the new life that is within you. One day a man came to Michelangelo and Michelangelo was there chipping away with his chisel at a big, giant, huge, just a huge shapeless piece of stone. And he asked the sculptor, the man said, well, what are you doing with that? And Michelangelo stopped for a moment, he turned to him and he said, I am releasing the angel who is imprisoned within the stone. I love that. What a picture of what Jesus has come to do with us. What a picture of what he is able to do with the creative power that put the stars in their place. Don't limit your God. He is a big God. He is a great God. And Jesus as Creator wants to show you that creative power within your very life. So we have talked about up until this point, last time, the deity of the Word. We have just now talked about the creation through the Word. Now from here, it's important to see, if you look at our chapter in front of us, that from verses 6 down to 13, you have a parenthesis. 
so that we're moving right along here. And suddenly we jump from this whole discussion of the Word to talk about John the Baptist. That is a parenthesis. We go down into that parenthesis and then we come out again back to the very same issue that we're dealing with in these first five verses. So what I want to do is go on now and drop down and pick up verse 14 and tie it in with the first few verses and then we'll go on and discuss the last few verses in this first section, verses 4 and 5. But verse 14 for now, let's drop down there. And let's talk about the incarnation of the Word. Do you know what incarnation means? It is a theological term. You don't find it in the Bible. But it is a theological term that simply describes the process of God's Son coming into the world and being a human being. That's the idea. It describes the process of God taking on flesh, the flesh of a man. So look at verse 14. Let's read it. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory... The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this statement here is just loaded with rich truth. So I want to see if we can mine some of it out. I don't want to rush over this. There are a number of great truths bound up here. First of all is the idea, and flowing with the context, first of all is the idea that this is the word of verse 1. This is the word of verse 1, when we read that the word became flesh. Just in case anybody read the statements in verse 1 about the word being God, and wondered then if that is really talking about Jesus Christ, or something just more abstract. Just in case, John wants there to be no question, so in verse 14 he pulls it all together, and he says, The word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This can be none other than Jesus Christ. So that is the immediate thought in the context, that He is the word of John's first verse. But there is more here. Let me take you to another thought. He is God among men. He is God among men. And what I want you to focus on is this, initially. God has dwelt among us. What a thought. God has dwelt among us. See, look at verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now go to verse 14 and continue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that. It makes so much sense. It's so simple. I don't know about you, but I went through a great seeking process before I became a Christian, where I sought God through all the Eastern philosophies and all of the meditation and all of the writings that you find in the Eastern philosophies. I found them all to be dead in streets. I found them also to be so cosmic that they sort of warp your mind when you're trying to understand them. And then in the warping process, they feed your pride so that you begin to think you're heavy. And so people talk to you about how your search is going and you get all vibey on them and your eyes sort of get buggy. And you tell them how you're in search of the vibration of the universe and seeking to become one with it, you know. I remember going through all of that, thinking I was so heavy. But here we're told simply, God became a man. That's what we're told here. This is the simple truth of it. God became a man. He has dwelt among us. John is saying this. Follow me on this. This is a fairly deep thought. John is saying, There was a point in time when he who never began to be but eternally existed and who continued to be what he eternally was began to be what he eternally was not. It's a fairly deep thought, isn't it? Are you with me? Do you know what it means? I'm like the Eastern philosophers now. Totally confusing you. I love this thought. Let me give it to you again. He who never began to be but eternally existed. That's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Before the beginning, when the beginning came, Jesus existed. He who never began to be but eternally existed. And, as he became a man, continued to be what he eternally was, which is God, began at a point in time to be what he eternally was not, which is a human being. All of that is to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Word, who never had a beginning, 
became a man and continued to be God at the same time as he became a man, which is something that he never was in eternity past, but at a moment in time, he suddenly was a human being as well as God. What a thought. God has dwelt among us. He has stepped down from eternity onto the planet earth and become a man and dwelt among us. Now, for those of you who have wondered about Jesus really being God, I know we talked about it last time, but sometimes you need to have it come at you more than once. So for those of you who have really wondered about Jesus being God come in the flesh, you find this concept of the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ joined together brought out elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, in case you've forgotten or weren't with us, in Hebrews 1.8, we read, But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. There God the Father calls God the Son, God. In Titus 2.13, Paul writing, says, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, watch this, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If you say to me, I don't find any place in the Bible where we are told that Jesus is God. Yes, I understand He's Savior, but I don't know where to read or I haven't seen it. And I've read all the way through and I never saw where it said He's God as well as Savior. Then you need to read Titus 2.13 again. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1.1 1, 1 says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says the exact same thing that Paul says, which tells us that their theology was identical on the deity of Jesus Christ. In John 20, verse 28, remember doubting Thomas? That's a whole study in itself, Thomas. But when Thomas came in and was able to see Jesus, and he said, here, if you don't believe it's me, go ahead, touch me. You notice he didn't run over and stick his finger in the hole in his hand. He ran over and he fell on his face before him. Do you know what he said to Jesus? There was no mistake in his mind of who Jesus was. It says in John 20, verse 28, and of course it would say this because of the intention of John's writing, it says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. If you are confused on the deity of Jesus Christ, know this, Thomas was not. If you're confused, know this, Peter was not and Paul was not. It was very clear to these people who knew him well that he was God. Very clear. Jesus in another place said, I and the Father are one. Jesus wasn't confused about it either. So when we read in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has dwelt among us. I'm reminded of Joseph's encounter with the angel. Could you turn in your Bible to Matthew 1.10? Go to Matthew 1.20. Here you remember that Mary and Joseph were betrothed to each other. And during that period of time where they continued to get to know each other, which was a sustained engagement period in those days, Mary shows up pregnant. Of course, Joseph is very concerned about this because as he's reviewing the Mosaic Law in his mind, he must really find out what has happened, get to the bottom of it, and then there should be, if the other party is found, there should be a stoning, right? So by the law, he would have to take her out and stone her. He's trying to figure out, what in the world am I going to do here? Because he knows that he is not the father. And so, because this is also very important, God sends an angel directly to the scene. And we read in verse 20 of Matthew 1, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Want to know who the father is? It is God, Joseph, and she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The reason this has had to happen this way, Joseph, is because something really big is going on here. The Savior of the world is coming. And so all this was done in verse 22, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what? 
God with us. God has come to this earth to dwell among us. And He came and was born as a little tiny baby. Can you imagine? God as a little tiny baby. I was reading the words of J.I. Packer, and he addressed this issue so well. He said, The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Think of it, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. Then he said this, The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. God came to earth. God, there was a moment in time when he who had never been such before became a human being and yet at the same time continued to be God. God has dwelt among us. This is what the verse is saying to us. There's another thought here, and that is that God has revealed himself to us in the process. Look at John 1.14. And here it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God has revealed himself to us. We beheld his glory. John is saying, it isn't just me. There was a lot of other people as well that saw that this was no ordinary man. We saw the glory of God in him. Now this glory is a glory that we are not unfamiliar with. You remember when the Bible says that Adam walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day? I don't think God came down and literally appeared to Adam so much as a man as that his glory, the Shekinah glory of God, I believe, came into the garden. And there as Adam walked along, he he knew the presence of God was with him. You have the Shekinah glory of God, I believe, evident in the garden. It's certainly there in the tabernacle of old. Remember that? You have Moses when he went up on the mountaintop and he said, God, show me your glory. And, And God says, all right, look, let's make a deal. I want to keep you living. If anybody looks at me and gets a full view of me, they'll die. Any man, you'll die on the spot. You disintegrate. So I'll show you my after glory. Remember when Moses came down the mountain? Remember what his face was like? It was glowing. The glory of God was in the garden. The glory of God was in the tabernacle. The glory of God was on the mountaintop. And it also got onto Moses' face. It was the Shekinah glory of God. We're seeing it throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the Holy of Holies. Remember when the high priest would go in once a year and there would be this bright shining glory reflecting off the golden walls of the Holy of Holies? We know this glory. We've seen this glory revealed in little bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament. What John is saying to us is we beheld His glory. We saw the glory of God in the body of a man. A.W. Tozer had some great thoughts on this. He said that he was put in a soft envelope of human flesh. He said, The awesome majesty of the Godhead was mercifully sheathed in the soft envelope of human flesh to protect mankind and wonder of wonders at the same time revealing as much glory as mankind could take. What a thought. And so you remember when they went to Mount Hermon up on the mountain? I think it was Mount Hermon. They on some mountain. Can't remember everything at once in a message. But they went up on a mountain. And remember that Jesus was transformed before them. They saw His glory. It was as if He just pulled back the curtain a little bit and let some more of the glory out, more than they had seen in His miracles and His preaching and all of the different things that had gone on with Him. We beheld His glory. This is the Shekinah glory of God. He says beheld. It's a word here. The word beheld, it literally means to see with the eyes, to behold, to contemplate, and to learn by looking. Same word is used of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus coming and he was gazing at him. Behold the Lamb of God. He's looking up at him with this great exhilaration. John is speaking of beholding the glory of God in a wonder. And at the same time learning that this is God. He has come to dwell among us and he is revealing himself. You want to know who God is? If you're on a search for God and you're running down one of those many spokes that are supposed to lead to the hub of the wheel, you're on your way to a dead end. Until you come to find God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. You don't need to go find God. God has come to find you. And He has taken every step and every measure necessary to reveal Himself to you in Jesus Christ. To reveal Himself to the entire human race. So when we read John 1.14, and we read the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we beheld his glory. If you bear in mind verse 1, John is saying this. He is insisting that in the human Jesus Christ, he beheld the Shekinah glory of God, who was and is the Logos who existed before time with God. He is saying, we, all of us, have seen this, all of us together. God has revealed himself to us. So he has dwelt among us to reveal himself to us. Let me give you another thought that I see here. God has made himself near to us. I love this. In my quest to know God, ever and always I pictured him so far off. Somehow we think somewhere that universe ends and then he's there. So you're praying to God and you're trying to send your prayer all the way across the universe to reach him and hoping to get an answer back one of these days. And of course, it's got to come all the way back, so you're waiting on God. But that it really isn't the way God wants us to conceive of Him. He wants to conceive of Him as being very near to us. He wants us to understand that in Jesus Christ, He has made Himself near to us. In Jesus Christ, God has made Himself near to us. Now think about this. In Exodus 33:20. God said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live, as I already alluded to with Moses. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it speaks of God as dwelling in an unapproachable light. Now these are terms that make us feel like God is afar off from us. But what we want to see here tonight in John is that God has made himself near to us. So the question is, how can we therefore know him? If these things are true, that no man can see my face and live, and he dwells in an unapproachable light, well, the answer is this, because he's come near to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus has bridged that gap. In 1936, a radio broadcast was transmitted from America to England. Just before the voice of King Edward VIII was to be heard, someone stumbled over a wire in the control room of WJZ, now WABC of New York, and snapped the only line of communication between the two countries. The engineers were frantic. Then, with only a few moments remaining before airtime, a quick-thinking apprentice grabbed the two broken ends of the wire and held on to them and bridged the gap. Seconds later, the king addressed the nation. In a very real sense, his words were being transmitted through the very body of that man. As they came through the one wire that was broken, which was joined to his hand and went down through his body into the other broken piece of the wire and out through the radio to the nation, the words of the king were literally being transmitted through the body of that man. Well, in a very real sense, this verse is saying to us that Jesus Christ has transmitted all that God is to us, and He has done it through the body of a man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we read here in John 1.14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so all of this is to say that in Jesus Christ, God has taken a form in which he can be seen, he can be experienced, and he can be understood by human beings. And that's what John is communicating to us. Paul sums this all up in his writing to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. God is among men in Jesus Christ. It is a fabulous and wondrous thing to contemplate. There is yet another thought here. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know if you've ever realized this and sought to apply it to your own life, but think about it. In the Gospels, you read of the life of Jesus Christ, you hear His teaching, you watch His behavior. And you realize that here in this man, in this humanity, that not only is the deity of God displayed in this humanity, but actually also there is a true man displayed. 
man as God intended him to be. Man as God created him to be when he placed him in the garden. A man has fallen. And through all of his sin, he's obliterated what he is to be. And we are so painfully reminded all the time of what man has become. And in the process, we forget what man is to be. You forget what you are to be. I forget what I am to be. But as we look at Jesus Christ, the God-man, I see the perfect example of what man is to be. So as I watch Jesus interact with human beings in the Gospels, I can see very clear, black and white, how I am to interact with other human beings. If you say to me, I don't know how to act as a Christian in a certain situation, I say, read the Gospels and find out. And find out what Jesus did in that situation because they're all there. They are all there. He is the true man among men, the example of what God wants men to be. So we have seen so far, looking at verse 14, that he is the word of John's first verse. He is God among men. He is the true man among men. But there's even something more here. And now we're getting down to the issue of our salvation in a very real sense because Jesus as a man is our gracious substitute. If it wasn't for his manhood, if it wasn't for the fact that he was human, full humanity, then he could never be our substitute because it is on the basis of his full humanity that he is able to go to the cross as a real human being and bear my sin die in my place as a substitute, as a real human being. Thomas Watson, that great Puritan years ago, said, Christ took our flesh upon him that he might take our sins upon him. See, we're talking about the incarnation. And now we're talking about one of the real reasons why. Why did he have to have this human body? He had to have this human body and be a human man so that he could take my sin upon him. You remember when Jesus was agonizing in the garden? We'll study it in John. In chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. He says, But for this purpose I came to this hour. What was he saying to us there? I became a man. I was born and became a man for the end that I might die, and that I might die as the substitute for other men, that in the body of a real man I would bear the sins of other real men and thus become the substitute for all humanity who would believe upon me. He is our gracious substitute. God has sent forth His Son to die in our place. And it is fascinating to me that as you look at verse 14, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, look at this, as of the only begotten of the Father. You know what John is saying there? He is saying this, He's the only human being who falls into this category. Now, you may study Buddha and listen to his teachings. You might read the writings of Confucius. And you might study other teachers, Muhammad and others, who claim to be a way. But you will never find another human being in this category who was able to die as your substitute for your sin. And furthermore, if you go outside the Bible, there is no such teaching as the fact that God would forgive a man of all of his sins. There is no other teaching like that outside of the Bible. There is an only begotten Son, and He is the only one. God has sent one Son to be our substitute, one Son to be a human being, and it's Jesus Christ. It is God come in the flesh, and that is why He is the only way to God. That is exactly why we are dogmatic that He is the only way to God, and that is exactly why He said, I alone am the way, and I alone am the truth, and I alone am the life. It's a very narrow teaching. See, we as Christians don't claim to be anything other than narrow-minded. So if someone says to you, you Christians, you're so dogmatic and you're so narrow-minded, you just give them a big toothy Jesus grin back. And you say, that's exactly right. Straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. But broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will go that way. Now which one are you going to be? And you just keep smiling at them and invite them to come to Christ as the way for them. You see, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In Philippians 2, 6, Paul puts this together, and he says, Who being in very nature God, there's another deity statement, the NIV brings that out, Who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now listen to this. Paul puts it all together in Galatians. And he says in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son forth, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, causing you to cry out, Abba, Father. Here's the progression. God sent His Son into the world as a human being. He went to the cross as our substitute and He died. And now He's ascended and gone back into heaven. And now He sends His Son not into the world, but into your heart. What a powerful thing. This is what salvation is all about. Now he's been sent to live inside of me. And not only that, but let me give you one last thought with John here in verse 14. Because of his humanity, he is now able in heaven to be our heavenly intercessor. If it wasn't for the fact that he was a real man, that you have deity joined with humanity, we would have no intercessor in heaven today. Because you see, when Jesus died, that was not the end of his humanity. He rose again on the third day, with a glorified humanity now. And we are told in Acts 1.9 that he ascended up into a cloud out of their sight, still being a man. And so now there sits a glorified man in the heavens whoever lives to make intercession for you. And he knows what it's like to be human because he still is human. Think of that. And at the same time, he is Almighty God. This is a great mystery, the mystery of godliness in Jesus Christ. He understands our needs. Why? Because the time... And the place and the position of his life, of coming into this world, the birth, the place, the position in life, were all completely by design because he didn't want anything to hinder him absolutely experiencing everything that a common man experiences. He knows what you go through. And that is why he is now your heavenly intercessor. And I thank God for that. Because when I come to pray and ask Christ for help, I'm coming as a human being. And he is still a human being. And he will not ever forget what it's like to be a human being because he ascended into heaven as a human being. And yet God, and he ever lives now to make intercession for me. Don't you thank God for that? John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All of these things that we've discussed are bound up in the fact that He is the incarnation of the Word, the incarnation of God. And the last thing I want to touch on, and we're only going to touch on this tonight, is in verses 4 and 5. If you go back up there, we see the life in the Word. The reason we're only going to touch on it is this. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We're only going to touch on it because this is now a signpost of where John is going for the rest of his gospel. From now on, he's going to tell us what that light is all about. From now on, he's going to tell us what that life is all about. The rest of the gospel speaks of the life bringer and the light bearer. And I want to just say as we come to a close here for this time, What a tragic thing in the face of all we've looked at tonight that there are those who would love darkness rather than light when God has so clearly revealed Himself that there are those that would rather sit in the darkness instead of come to the light and come to live in the light. How about you? Are you living in the light? Do you know Jesus? Or do you love your darkness? Are you here listening to these words and still in your darkness? If you are, I say to you tonight, let go of it. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Let Him show you His life. Let Him flood your mind and heart with His light and give you a brand new existence. Let Him chip away at that old you and draw out that new you that He would place within. Let go of your old life. Let go of the darkness. Because you see, if you don't, then you're going to be a lot like a man I want to tell you about right now. When the Bastille, that wretched prison in France castle-like prison in Paris, was about to be destroyed in 1789. A convict was brought out who had been confined in one of the gloomy cells for many years. But instead of joyfully welcoming his liberty, he begged to be taken back to his dark, dingy cell. It had been so long since he had seen the sunshine that his eyes could not endure its brightness. And so he was taken back 
to die in the murky dungeon where he had for so long been a captive because he simply could not stand the light. Are you going to live your life like that in the darkness? Or will you respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ today to come unto him, to give him your burdens, to give him your sin, and let him forgive you and give back to you his life and his light? Only you can make the choice. Make it right where you sit today and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He is God. He is the only way to God. He is the only way you will ever escape emptiness and come to know fullness. And it takes your choice to do it. You make that choice. And as we close, listen to what he has done for you. This is for all of us. He descended that we might ascend. He became poor that we might become rich. He was born that we might be born again. He became a servant that we might become sons. He had no home that we might have a home in heaven. He was hungry that we might be fed. He was thirsty that we might be satisfied. He was stripped that we might be clothed. He was forsaken that we might not be forsaken. He was sad that we might become glad. He was bound that we might go free. He was made sin that we might be made righteousness. And he died that we might live. And he came down that we might be caught up and go to live forever in heaven with him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time together in your word. I do pray that you would cause these truths to come again and again to our minds. As we are faced with all the deception in this world, may we have burning within us the truth that God has come and dwelt among us. And may we have burning within us the reality that you have now sent forth your Son to dwell in our hearts. And Lord, we pray for all those that have listened to this message that do not yet know you in a personal way and ask that you would liberate them and bring that drawing within them unto Jesus Christ that only you can bring by your Holy Spirit and that this would be the day of surrender and salvation by your hand, Father, even as you have done it with so many of us. May you do it with those that do not yet know you, and may this be the day. And when it's all over, may they know that you have done it. For we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.